is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We are continuing our marathon of racking and stacking interesting conversations before I disappear. Um, and it occurred to me, you know, I, I mentioned in the solo podcast on Friday that I had done this panel at AI about Paul Cantor. I was on the um, pop culture panel. There was also one on Shakespeare, which I'm unqualified to participate in, um, though I do love annoying Shakespeare scholars by just asking them, did he really exist? Did he really write all those things just to annoy them? And uh, one of my co-panelists was actually a colleague of mine at AI. He went from being a suit to being a scholar at AI. And uh, he is also a, a, a devotee of all things pop culture and more like Paul Cantor in the sense that he actually has like a fancy PhD in like literature or something or English and, and, and all that kind of thing. And, uh, um, and I said, you know, why haven't I had him on the podcast? So I invited him on the podcast. So. Chris Scalia, welcome to The Remnant. Thank you, Jonah. It's great to be with you. Thanks a lot for inviting me. So um, some of our, we're going to get to the pop culture stuff, but I figured I needed to front load something because sometimes listeners don't like the pop culture stuff. They're like, save that for glop. <laughs> and uh, in the great spirit of Dr. Johnny Fever from WKRP, I talk about whatever the hell I want on this podcast. And so I could just yell booger for the next hour. But I did think that people... That some adroit listeners might have been curious about the fact that your last name is Scalia and that you might be related to uh, another uh, almost as famous Scalia, um, Antonin Scalia, the, the late great uh, Supreme Court justice. And that is, in fact, the case, correct? That is correct. I am uh, the eighth of his nine children, number eight in the birth order, number one in their hearts, as I like to say. Nice. Nice. I am. Um, until you, the Scalia I saw the most was the priest. Yes. Which is Paul, right? Yes. Father, yes. Father Paul Scalia of the Arlington Diocese. Was he like, you know, I mean, like just going by gross pop culture stereotypes, like Saturday Night Fever and whatnot, was he the, your mom's favorite just because he was the priest? And that's just like the dream of good Catholic families is to have a priest kid? Well, I, I think he's the favorite now, but, but growing up, um, uh, I don't know that there were many indications that he was any better behaved than those of us who, who didn't go on to become a priest. Um, so I, I, I have great memories of him, um, shooting bottle rockets from, from our house and things like that. Uh, so I, I don't know how early it was, how evident it was, uh, early on to my parents that he would go that direction. But, uh, but I did get a lot of my pop culture tastes from him, uh, especially my musical tastes. So, and of course, he's been a significant influence 
uh, religiously too. But but first, it was the pop culture, pop cultural influence. So just on that note, um, and again, I, I'm asking this all in the spirit of respect and whatnot. But did he have? Did he have does he have strong feelings about Father Guido Sarducci? We have never talked about Father Guido Sarducci. <laughs> I, um, we talk about the Godfather a lot, but it, it is it is weird. You would think we would talk about Guido Sarducci more, but he's just not. He was never a big. Uh, uh, factor in the Scalia family conversations. Uh, the Sopranos a little bit more, but but specific fictional priests. We we had so many so many real life priests to talk about <laughs> and and occasionally make fun of. All right, so I, I warned you in advance because I wanted permission. I wasn't going to bring up your dad if you didn't want to talk about your dad. It's just like seems like good manners not to surprise somebody, but that kind of thing. But I heard an interview once, which I thought was uh, was it. Was it Junk Biskupic who wrote a biography of, of your dad? Yeah. And I never read it. I don't know if it's any good on all the legal stuff and all that. Um, but I remember listening to her on C-SPAN being interviewed over it. And I thought it was just sort of fascinating. And the way I remember it, and you, you correct me if I've got this wrong. Okay. Is that your grandfather and grandmother were both from big families, right? Lots of siblings. And they all came to the States. Uh, got very highly educated and and then none of them had kids except for your dad so is that right is that he's the only one of his generation in the Scalia family yeah that's that's pretty close to to right uh his father only had a sister uh-huh. um and he came to the United States from Sicily when he was in his late teens and she came a little bit later and his sister didn't have any children his mother was uh her her parents were immigrants she had i think six siblings six or seven um and none of them had children except for yeah except for his mother so yeah he was the king he uh, he was the only one and then he went on obviously to have nine children of his own right so the the scoopix point about this doing putting your dad on the couch a little bit was that he grew up in this environment with all of these aunts and uncles around, plus his own parents. It was a fairly intellectual or, or, or literate, artistically oriented family. And he had to sort of serve as the, the performer for all of them. <laughs> and her theory was that this is one of the things that made your dad sort of like a, um, a performative guy. I mean, like certainly in his writing, you know, but also just in his presence, he was... And I, I, again, I say this with the utmost respect. I, 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 I love the guy, you know, it, from afar, but he had a flair for the dramatic, right? He was kind of an, yeah. like an intellectually operatic kind of guy. And this was her theory about where that came from. Does that make any sense to you? It, do, it does make sense. I should, you did ask me about the education of his, of his family and I, I didn't answer that. Yeah. His father was a professor of romance languages and his mother was a school teacher. Uh, so yeah, he came from pretty well-educated uh, parentage. Um, and I think this Kupik's assumptions are, they make sense though. You know, it's not like he was the only member of his family who was like that. It was just kind of a, a dramatic family to begin with. Um, they, they all like to talk, uh, f- f- the ones I got to know pretty well, um, liked telling stories and they were good at it. But yeah, he, my dad was definitely a ham and he, he liked, uh, or in high school, he starred in the in the school productions at Georgetown. He was uh, part of the the school's uh, theater club there. 
other members at different times obviously included Bradley Cooper and uh, Jefferson Davis. So kind of mixed, uh, <laughs> mixed lineage there. But uh, yeah, he, he definitely liked to perform. And I, I think that absolutely kind of part of that came from the fact that he was, he was the center of attention for so many people in, in his family. And I would say that also being the only child of that generation inspired him to have a large family. Uh, my, my great aunt used to tell us a story about how she remembered my father when he was a kid going into the backyard of uh, where he spent some time in um, New Jersey. And he used to throw, it just basically, he was just on his own and lonely and muttering under his breath that he was going to have a lot of kids because he <laughs> didn't want any of them to be lonely and bored like he was. So he, he was true to his word. We're not going to get deep into the, 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 the legal stuff and all of that. But, um, um, I did want to ask one other thing. Um, when I started at AEI, Judge Bork was still there and I hung out in Bork's or- orbit quite a bit. Walter Burns was still there. Mm-hmm. There was, a, there were a lot of, of legendary conversations about an old poker game. Yeah. That Scalia, Rehnquist, Bork. Burns, I can't remember who else. Irving Crystal. Irving Crystal, that's right, who was also yeah. still there when I got to AI. Um, how, like, how often were those games played and were they ever at your house? They rotated. I think the games were once a month and the, the houses rotated. So occasionally they would be at my house. And um, I, uh, we were never allowed to participate. Obviously, none of the kids and my, my mother, n- none of us were allowed to participate. Um, basically, the, the kitchen was off limits uh, whenever those those uh, matches were going on. And, you know, I was pretty clueless about, I didn't know who any of the people were when the, when the poker game started. Uh, in retrospect, I should have hidden a corner and, and taken notes. It's, it's such a ridiculous lineup of, of players there. But I mean, in, the, in, the, in, in my little egghead world, that is like second only to getting a picture of dogs actually playing poker. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, yeah, that that cheesy Republican painter who does all those portraits of uh, great great re- Republicans should should do the version of that. I, I really th- that's a great idea. You know, th- there's another um, when my when my father was confirmed, he th- there was a big party for him. His his friends threw, and they had they had this blow up um, vert like uh, a cork board blow up of a political cartoon um, that had him and Rehnquist. Uh, it was kind of a, a spoof of the American Gothic painting with him and Rehnquist with, and, and President Nixon and his fr- a, bun- a bunch of his friends signed it. And the people who signed this thing, I had always, th- I'd always liked the, the cartoon. I thought it was pretty funny. And it was in our basement near our TV for all of my childhood. So I knew it well, but I never really paid attention to the names. But uh, whenever I look at it now, I see the names and it's like Ken Starr, Larry Silberman, Walter Burns, Ruth Ginsburg, um, Robert Bork. It's just a murderer's row of legal figures from the 1980s and 90s. And um, again, I was a, I was a kid. I didn't get it. Uh, I didn't I didn't realize. Obviously, I knew it was a big deal that my dad had been confirmed to the Supreme Court. And I understood that it was a big job when he was on the court. But I, I you know a lot of it was lost on me at the time. So, and again, you can, you can dodge this entirely if you like, but was your, uh, 
Was your dad unduly vexed by the borking of Bork? I don't remember it at the time, uh-huh. uh, but I, I, in in retrospect, conversations uh, with him about it, yeah, absolutely, he thought it was uh, he w- it was unfair. Uh, you know, th- there there are arguments that you know uh, Judge Bork, Bork could have handled the hearings better with some of his answers. He, he came across as a little arrogant, things like that, but. It was especially, it didn't come, it was what, a year after my father had been confirmed ninety-eight zero, mm-hmm. And it's not that they were the same figures and had the same history, but it was just such a, and obviously Democrats then had, with Bork, had controlled the Senate. Um, it was just such a sudden turnaround. Uh, it, it was vexing. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't have details of, uh, you know, specific things he said about it at the time. It wasn't like your mother shooed all the kids away from dad. From <laughs> no, <laughs> no, we, we, we had front row seats when he was muttering over the uh, morning newspaper at the breakfast table. Um, yeah. I mean, the Bork hearing, I mean, we, again, we don't need to get deep in the weeds on it, but like, if you go back and you watch it, you know, I was, it was, I guess my senior year of high school, something like that. It was 87, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. 87. And, uh, the remarkable thing about it is like that was the moment like if you ever watch Supreme Court nomination hearings now and they don't answer any questions and they say I can't answer a hypothetical or I can't think about I can't talk about something that I might have to rule on it's all because of the Bork thing right because Bork actually ran it like a Yale seminar where he's like well that's an interesting question you know you could do this you know, or you could do that you know? right exactly and that that's one of the things that killed him I mean other than you know the perfidy of Joe Biden and 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 Ted Kennedy. Well, the answer of his that gets the most criticism is somebody asked him why he wanted to be on the Supreme Court. And uh, and he said one of the reasons was that it would be an intellectual feast, which is certainly true. Um, and and that's a very professorial answer. But uh, I think that that was kind of turned against him as as suggesting he was just, you know, in it, as they say on uh, reality shows, he was in it for the wrong reasons. Um, but yeah, it was just obviously those, those hearings changed everything that led to, you know, the, the next guy also, his, his replacement was uh, a replacement nominee Ginsburg. Ginsburg. Yeah. yeah. He had, he, he also had to bow out because of uh, the demon weed. Yeah, exactly. Which is hard to imagine somebody bowing out for now. Um, yeah. I always thought, you know, again, you'd hear these stories because Scalia, you, I'm sorry, your dad and <laughs> uh, Bork, they were both at AI together for a while when your dad was the editor of, I believe, Regulation Magazine. Yeah. And uh, renew your subscription. <laughs> um, this, I, the thing is, is like, I loved Judge Bork. I mean, he, a very intimidating dude, but like, uh, I got to be pretty friendly with him. And, but the thing is, and I never, I, I think I shook your dad's ha- hand once, you know, but um, personality types could not be more different, right? I mean, like, I, Judge Bork, you could ask him a multivariate complex question with all these contingencies and, and, and then he would just respond no. And that was it. And like, and your dad would be like the kind of person you would say, well, you know, they would get into that. It was just very different um, types. But anyway, I mean, I mean, Bork is, he, he was such an important figure in the, in the rise of the American legal movement. And um, because of what happened to him, when he was uh, nominated, I think a lot of people don't recognize that, and they just kind of see it as see him as the guy who d- who didn't get through the hearings. But the court as it is now, I think it's fair to say uh, we we probably wouldn't have it as it is now if it weren't for for Judge Bork. Um, I I think that's also true of my father, but but I oh sure, uh, and I know you weren't asking me about Judge Bork, but I do think it it's just kind of tragic how he was treated because he gets. Uh, it, 
all of his contributions are kind of overshadowed by that. We're going to switch gears now. Um, on the panel that we did, uh, you lamented the decline of uh, private investigator TV shows. Yes. And, um, and you started listing a few. And then I threw out Banachek. <laughs> yeah, I felt, I felt terrible. I hadn't heard of it. <laughs> so Banachek was a George Prepard Whoa. TV show from like, I want to say 71, 72, 71, 73, something like that. So between Breakfast at Tiffany's and uh, the A-Team, that yeah. this is what he did. Well, and also, I, w- you know, I mean, like before the A-Team, there was, of course, Damnation Alley, um, which, is, which terrified me as a kid. But um, I don't know that show either. That was a movie. Oh, okay, where okay. True. My understanding. I think I got this from Pod. But my understanding is so. Damnation Alley was a post-apocalyptic uh, movie where basically Papard and I, I really hope I haven't screwed this up. If if it wasn't Papard in it, but I'm pretty sure it was. But anyway, they um they had these super RVs that could withstand a nuclear war and they had to go do something to fix something or whatever. And there were like man eating cockroaches and it kind of terrified me. But the, the funny thing is they, it came out, I believe in 77 and Hollywood was convinced it was going to be the giant blockbuster. (laughs) And instead this little movie that they all had scorn for called star Wars. Yeah. Blew it away. Um, But anyway, Banachek, was a Polish PI who solved major crimes and then got a cut like 10% off the top from the insurance companies. And his big go-to thing was um, he had these, he constantly talked about these old Polish proverbs. And I'll just read you a couple of them. A truly wise man never plays leapfrog with a unicorn. Read the whole library, my son, but the cheese will still smell after four days. 12 good horses and silver candlesticks won't stop the snow from falling in Bialystok. Anyway, it's all true. All, all undeniable. Yeah. When an owl comes to a mouse picnic, it's not there for the sack races. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's a lot of that stuff. And uh, I just figured I would. Uh, so were those, were those uh, aphorisms kind of uh, the show's way of kind of telling Polish, uh, Polish jokes are those aphorisms supposed to be like uh, the Polish submarine with screen doors or, or, I, I or what? I don't think so. I mean, again, it came out when I was a toddler and I only yeah. saw it intermittently in, in um, rewind, reruns. But there's uh, uh, something about the name Banachek that I just always loved. It's, it's sort of like it, it rolls off the tongue the way Barnicky does from uh, Bill Murray and Stripes. Barnicky? He owes me money. My, my, um, Sister married somebody by the last name Banaszewski, which is maybe even better. And and which and one of the reasons I'm surprised I've never heard of this show. You think they would uh, would have you know claimed that name for their own? But, but oh well. All right. So make your case about uh, what the, the lamentable decline of, of PI movies. Well, to, to name some other shows that your listeners may have heard of. Uh, well, I mean, you, you go back to the well. There's Sherlock Holmes, obviously, but uh, and film noir often was about uh, private investigators, especially Philip Marlowe from the Raymond Chandler novels. But in the 70s and 80s, so many TV shows were based on them. Like uh, one of my dad's favorite, The Rockford Files. I'm rewatching that series now. And it is 
It's great. It's fantastic. Obviously, it's not HBO prestige quality, but it's really good. Magnum PI, uh, obviously the PI is private investigator. Uh, Simon and Simon, which was a a favorite that people have forgotten about, but that was a really good one. And uh, there are others. Heart to heart. (laughs) Heart to heart. They were PIs, weren't they? Um, The A-team, they were kind of PIs. uh, I count them. Uh, and then even even more recently, Burn Notice, one one of Adam White's favorite shows, I think. Uh, it, he was a PI. Um, Monk was sort of a PI slash, slash a cons- he was technically a consultant, but um, but those shows they don't have shows like that anymore. And instead, you have a lot of crime shows just about the cops. And that's that in and itself isn't new. Obviously, you could name a lot like NYPD Blue or Hill Street Blues. Um, or dragnet. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, now that's all there is and they have them for, you know, every city in America. So, you know, you got, you have FBI Omaha, uh, and it's, in other words, it's the, the institutionalization of, I guess, crime fighting or detective work. And I think it's, I think it's just interesting, especially in, in a time when you, we actually see more skeptical of police in general. Um, we don't have more shows that kind of have crime fighting or crime solving outside of uh, those institutions. And I thought it was especially interesting in relation to the work of the scholar we were discussing, Paul Cantor, who really liked writing about kind of the American commercial spirit and what he uh, well, spontaneous order. Uh, and the PI seems to fit in that uh, in that category of it because he's kind of straddling the line between uh, this this public service and uh, the institution of the police department and private commerce and capitalism. Uh, Rockford's a great example because he's always going to his police buddy friend for help, but is also always in trouble with the police. And every other episode um, has to spend the night in a cell for one reason or another. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I was, so I was thinking about this, and we were going to get to your, you know, the, 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 our bone of contention in a minute, but um, about Perry Mason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, because I think it's a good point, right? There is, I mean, certainly in the context of Paul Cantor's stuff about the, the sort of, the gray area of sort of informal justice. Yeah. Which is um, uh, just a huge, huge part of American culture. And I think one of the things that we didn't talk about too much on the panel, but I think Paul Cantor 
was kind of right that basically the Western is American culture, right? And mm -hmm. um, uh, even even you know gangster movies in a way are kind of westerns and and Walking Dead and Walking Dead, right? And there's this there's this weird fine line or subtle distinction between it's sort of like there's the private investigator for hire who basically ends up, you know, turning the kid over to the cops, right? Which is sort of like what the guys in Scooby-Doo do, right? And they just sort of, they, they catch the guy, those meddling kids catch the guy and then they hand him over to the cops. But then there's also sort of justice for hire, which is a little darker, right? And that's sort of have gun will travel, but also um, the equalizer. Oh yeah. Where it's like the law can't help. And so if you need justice, you go to the Equalizer. I liked the Denzel Washington Equalizer movies. I have not watched the Queen Latifah remake yeah, of it. Neither have I. But I think it's sort of, it's, it's, it's not quite the same, right? I mean, there's one thing about like, you catch the guy, you hand him over to the cops. And there's another thing where the A-team was sort of more of a, I mean, I guess they didn't kill a lot of people at the end, did they? There were a lot of bullets without a lot of dying in that show. A, a lot of car accidents uh, where people jumped out right on time. It was basically like, G.I. Joe. Nobody from Cobra ever actually died. They escaped right on time. It was sim similar with the A-Team. Well, you were talking about uh, Justice for Hire. The, the ultimate example of that is Death Wish, right? right. Um, and you're right. Those, those are much darker. I don't remember the, the Equalizer. I haven't seen the movies or the Queen Latifah, but the television show I remember as, well, he was, he was British, wasn't he? So obviously he was going to be dapper and smooth, but uh, there was, it was much less gritty than Death Wish. And he was clearly the good guy. But am I right in remembering that Death Wish, you kind of rooted for him, but also he, was, he wasn't clearly the good guy? Or it's been a very long time since I've seen Yeah, that. I mean, I, I've rewatched it fairly re in the last year or two. Um, you kind of, he was sort of an anti-hero. You know, you kind of rooted for him and all this. And, but part of it was the, part of the point of the thing was the indictment of the system. Where right, exactly. Yeah. At the end of the movie, the police catch him and say, get out of town. Because because he's too Bronson's character is too popular to prosecute, um, and which is an interesting indictment of of the system. You know, I, I was I was talking to somebody about about the private investigators after our panel, and they mentioned Batman, and you know, Batman was originally the series was Detective Comics, and you know, he, he you you wouldn't hire Batman, but he uh, he was essentially a private investigator um, who worked closely with the police, you know, when, whenever commissioner Gordon needed them. I think it was actually for a while. The tagline was world's greatest detective or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you charted the course of Batman throughout the comic books and popular culture, he starts as a freelancer who helps the cops to, as things get grittier to basically justice, you know, uh, you know, on his own kind of, kind of thing. But I, I guess I guess what I find so interesting to, to circle back on why this topic uh, interests me for you know probably to an, an unhealthy extreme it it just it's very weird that these shows aren't popular anymore um, given the 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 decline in appreciation for the blue that we seem to have I mean Blue Bloods is is such a popular show. You talk to anybody over 50 uh, or 60 
that is always like one of their favorite shows. It's, it's become, you know, it's the Matlock of our time. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of strange given the, the tenor of our times and, and uh, the attitudes, the decline, I guess, in, in um, respect or faith in police, uh, police work. Yeah. I mean, I think part of, I mean, this is a, it's not quite a vulgar Marxist explanation for it, but I think mm-hmm. part of it, I would suppose actually has to do with market market segmentation, right? So like most of those shows you're talking about the FBI shows. And by the way, I should say one of my oldest and dearest friends is a showrunner for the FBI shows um, or, or was, but the FBI shows blue bloods, at least when it was originally running, um, the NCIS shows, right? They're all CBS shows. Yeah. And CBS, it's weird, like, because I'm under the age of 60, with the exception of maybe Big Bang Theory or one or two other shows. Like, I haven't watched any CBS shows in like 20 years. And their cultural footprint, it's weird. They're among the highest rated, most successful shows of the last quarter century. Yeah. But they're like, you could combine all of their, all of the shows and their cultural footprint for somebody who reads the New York Times regularly is less than girls, which never got more than like 400 or 500,000 viewers. You know, it's weird. No, that, that, that's true. And, and big bang theory is another great example. I do not like that show at all. Uh, but it was, and it's had no real cultural footprint in the ways that, you know, a lot of other sitcoms have. Um, but that was enormously popular. Uh, but, but it just never got any of the sort of traction or, or conversation that even a show like, uh, how I met your mother did. Which I have to say, look, I, I actually watch Big Bang Theory quite a bit because I, I can fall asleep to it. Yeah. <laughs> I, get, I get these shows where like I've, I've seen it, I get it. I don't care about rewatching it enough, but it's something that has a soporific effect for me now. And probably like when I see it on TV, because, you know, I, I now it'll like almost have lobby and make me drowsy. All right. So we, we have to just you know, get the elephant out of the room while you were doing your list of, of, of your lament literally tearing your cloth and gnashing your teeth about the decline of, of detective shows. I said, well, they've done this remake of Perry Mason and I think it's excellent. And you just turned on me, wheeled on me (laughs) and said, I disagree. (laughs) Um, And uh, you wrote me a note apologizing for it, which I told you was unnecessary. Um, But now you get to make your case. Why don't you like the Perry Mason show? I didn't see the end of season two. So I, maybe it got very good. It's not because I, I'm a huge uh, fan of the original Perry Mason because I've only really seen a few episodes, but I will acknowledge that the HBO reboot is beautiful, um, very well produced and well acted. But it seemed to me like they were trying too hard to subvert what the original was about, um, which was, uh, from what I understand, what I've seen the original was kind of a belief in justice, a belief in the American system and the new, the new version kind of subverts that at every turn. Perry Mason is, uh, he's, he's basically an alcoholic. He's, his, his life is a total mess and he, he just kind of winds up in his position by accident. Um, the, his DA friend doesn't really believe in justice. The, the last I saw, he was just saying it's basically all a game and it, it's just, I just wondered why they bothered calling it Perry Mason apart from the, the obvious reason, which is the, the IP prestige. 
uh, it was just so, so different from the original that I found it a little, a little annoying. And I might even call it a little too woke with some of the, with some of the casting. It seemed like they were, they were checking an awful lot of boxes uh, with the, with the secondary characters as well. So I, I will grant you some of that. Um, I think that the, the cinematography of it, the set design, the costuming is, if it doesn't get an Emmy for one or all of those things, uh, the system is rigged. And I agree with you. There was a little too much transgressive, let's topple icon kind of stuff. I didn't get, in part because if you, like you, I didn't really like or watch the original Perry Mason show, you know, in part because it was so friggin' predictable because he won every single case, but one in the history of the show. Yeah. Um, and so it got really formulaic for me, but I think the, the, the world setting of it is really, really impressive. I agree. Some of the casting, some of the, you know, like sexuality, you know, the gay characters and all of that. And the, the Asian secretary and there's, and, and uh, there's, there's some, there's some identity politics box checking stuff in it. I agree. But at the same time, um, if you can get past the name Perry Mason, um, I just think it's a great show. I mean, I think yeah. it's really well done and well developed. And I don't know this, but you know, before the TV, the original TV show, there was a Perry Mason radio show. And before that, there were a lot of novels and short stories. And for all I know, it's more authentic towards the original stories. It's sort of like, I kind of feel like this way, or it may not be, but like, you know, you see these movies, you know, where they try to do Cinderella in a gritty way or, you know, that kind of thing. And people get really pissed off about it. And then I'm always like, have you ever read like what the original stories were like, where the, you know, the, the slippers originally the stepsisters, they cut off their toes <laughs> to fit into the slippers, right? You could go a lot darker and the stories were grim. Yeah. Uh, um, no, that's, I've actually heard that, uh, that it, uh, the new version is, uh, more in keeping with with the original novels and stories, uh, but yeah, I, I'm I haven't read those myself either, so I can't confirm that. But yeah, that that does make sense. Well, I mean, just just to go back to kind of the over the top nature of, of how many issues they're trying to cover in the most recent one, in in the the second season, you've got um, kind of the migrant worker issue or illegal immigration issue, and then uh, um, and then the, the class issues involved, and then the black uh, photographer slash investigator who lives in Watts, they make a point of saying that this is this neighborhood he's living in is Watts. It's just, it, it seemed a little bit forced a lot of the time. I just didn't I mean just to push back on, but look at, I am not for, I don't like, I do not like politicized yeah. movies and art and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I don't like beat you over the head didactic stuff, but you know, if you're going to do, uh, if you're going to do modern age, LA noir, mm -hmm. you kind of got to deal with like you know, the racism and, you know, and messed upness. I mean, I thought LA confidential, you know, was a great movie, but it, you know, it dealt with some of that stuff too. Right, that's fair. I just wish they could be more skill, more skillful with it and, and do it with, uh, in a more precise way. And I don't, I don't know how to do that in this one. Uh, in, in this case, let, let me give you an example. Um, this is a, a neighboring complaint. Um, and actually wrote about this for the dispatch. There was a masterpiece adaptation of the 18th century novel, Tom Jones. And 
they made some pretty significant changes to it. And the most significant one was that the the female love interest, a central character, um, is played by a black actress. Um, and her backstory is that she was uh, the daughter of uh, a plantation owner and and one of his slaves. And she comes back to England and uh, has this love affair with with the title character. It's a clever way to update it, but it it's a little bit of a stretch to think that would happen. Um, but the showrunners said, oh, we read about cases like this where it does happen. So, But I'm willing to go along with that. The problem is, it's almost like they don't make a big enough deal about it. The, nobody mentions, the, the main reason Tom Jones, uh, his relationship with this woman is frowned upon is that he's a bastard child and she is uh, well-born. Or, or at least the uh, her her father is a grandfather is a squire. So it's a class issue. Nobody ever mentions the racial problems. So in a way, I'm glad they didn't make race a bigger bigger deal because it would have so distorted the original, um, and just again make you wonder. Well, why are you even calling this Tom Jones? On the other hand, if you're going to make that initial change, you you kind of need to see it to its logical ends uh, to really be to be really credible. No, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think I I have no problem with like introducing African American or Asian characters into the past, and if you're going to make them, if you're just casting actors to be have a more inclusive cast or they're the best actor or all that kind of stuff, it's fine. But if you're going to lean into the characters race or sexuality or any of that kind of stuff you kind of need to have the other characters deal with it as they would have contemporaneously or it just feels like you're being they're retconning the past and i think that's that's often a problem right i think that's a good way of putting it um all right so you you entered this issue into the discussion on the panel and it seems apropos given First of all, the fact that there were some listeners uh, to the podcast I did with Brett Devereaux about ancient Rome who accused me of, of anti-Italian bigotry. <laughs> and, um, and then there's the problem of my wife who does not like mob movies um, because she thinks they glorify the mafia and criminals. And you brought up in the Ginter panel that, um, that you, ha- you, 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 you played the identity politics card and said as somebody with a vowel at the end of their last name, you needed to address some question about the Godfather or whatnot. So I, just sort of generally speaking, um, as a proud Italian American, um, do you have uh, issues with the Hollywood portrayal of, of, of the mafia? Um, you know, which you, if you feel like you have to say the mafia doesn't exist, we can have that conversation <laughs> too. Um, but uh, wh- how do you think about that stuff? Uh, my, my family, you know, uh, the Godfather is Thanksgiving viewing for us. So, uh, you know, I was not, uh, raised to, to see that as, um, an insult to Italian Americans. Um, in the, in the context of the, of the panel, um, a student attending commented afterwards that the, uh, she didn't like the Godfather movies because they, they glorified the mob. And I just, I, that's not how I see the movies at all. Um, they, they dress well. It's a, it's a beautiful film. 
they dress well, they eat well, they party well, um, but things do not end well. Um, and I think it shows that, I think the movies show that what the characters end up sacrificing to get what they have um, and have only fleetingly isn't, isn't worth what, what they do. So from that perspective, I, I don't see them as, as glorifying that, that way of life. And from the perspective of kind of Italian American heritage, I guess I'm not offended by it at all in part because nobody else in my family was. Um, but also because I think by the time I was watching it, there really wasn't a whole lot of anti-Italian American bigotry. I mean, my father was the first Italian American on the Supreme court and that was a big deal at the time, but, um, it wasn't a huge deal at the time. I think by then Italian Americans had been, by the time I was experiencing these films, Italian Americans had been assimilated enough into the culture that, that it wasn't so offensive. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's, 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 it surprises a lot of people to point it out, but like the ethnic politics thing of it, identity politics seems like too strong. Yeah. But uh, was sufficiently powerful in the eighties that Mario Cuomo lobbied, for Scalia to get the seat for your dad to get the seat on this ground, on these grounds yeah, that like it was good for the Italians. And, um, like it is inconceivable that a leading light of the democratic party today would make that kind of argument for a very conservative nominee. It's good for the polls. You know, just, they would not, you know, you know, the checks need this, you know, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to people. And it shows you, I think it's kind of progress, but it's also kind of just, you know, interesting. Yeah. Frank Sinatra wrote my dad a congratulatory letter after he was confirmed, which was surreal, but, but also kind of awesome. Yeah. I, I, um, was, that is awesome. Um, I was just watching a few minutes of oceans 13 the other night and, uh, while we were getting dinner ready and there's this whole spiel in that you never betray you never go back you never break faith with somebody who shook sinatra's hand and it's <laughs> <laughs> just like the number of skeevy people who probably shook sinatra's hand you know this idea that like oh he was this noble the noblest man on earth is just kind of weird you know even among honor among thieves it's weird well jonah taking it back to to your original question i mean it reminds me of the you remember that that conversation i don't remember what season it was in the sopranos but um, Tony's therapist is having dinner with an Italian American friend, and this friend just uh, goes off about how much he hates. I think uh, I th- I think mob movies because because it's so disparaging to the image of Italian Americans. That always struck me as a little bit. That scene struck me as a little bit anachronistic, um, only because but you know th- that would have been in the early two thousands. I just don't think there was. I don't think there were many people who, who were thinking that way then about, you know, Goodfellas or for that matter, the Sopranos. Yeah. Her, I think, well, her ex-husband was constantly going on about, he was part of the, uh, the Italian American anti-defamation society or something like that. Right. And I always read that as the, the writers and producers of the show venting against people who are giving them crap in real life. And, but other than that, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So, you know, Adam Kuyper had asked this question on the panel about, you know, why 
are so many movies and TV shows set outside the law, right? Westerns, mob movies, uh, all this gray area, private detective things. Um, and it's one of those kind of questions that on the one hand I thought was, I don't mean this as an insult to Adam, but it was sort of like simultaneously dumb and really smart because, you know, on the one hand, you can't make a lot of good entertaining movies where everybody plays by the rules. They do their homework. They don't cheat on their wives. They come home after, straight after work and have dinner, go to bed and start their day over and live lives of decency because there's just no drama in that. Right. You know, so you have to go outside. And the, the reason I bring this up and that was part of my answer to him is just like, that's where the entertainment is. But I think, um, you know, there's a reason why in all so many of the sci-fi movies, they have to go to the fringes of space like in Aliens or whatever, because, well, I would love to watch a movie set on Earth that's just about sort of normal futuristic politics and you know, in business. Most people wouldn't. Well, look, at when, when Star Wars became about, you know, taxes in the, in the prequels, right. it was not quite as exciting. Right. Although I got to say that the new, um, I can't remember what it's called, the... the it's going to kill me. The spinoff series that they recently had. Um, Andor. Andor. I think yeah, that was good. Really well done about how they kind of show the dark side of being part of a, a, an, evil, an evil empire, as it were. But uh, I think that that's sort of the reason I bring it up is I think that's sort of the defense of mob movies to a certain extent is you have to show the world outside of conventional morality and uh, rule of law and and basic decency in part to sort of get more at human nature right because people who, who work hard and play by the rules and all that kind of stuff uh, you don't display the sort of interesting eternal parts of human nature in ways that are particularly entertaining you gotta sort of put people in extreme situations and you know whether that's an asteroid coming or aliens attacking or you know uh, you're a mob movie that's where the sort of the eternal truths of human nature are going to emerge and be kind of more interesting. I think that's right. And, and uh, Cantor wrote really well about the Godfather um, as an, as a kind of a, I don't know, maybe a moral, moral telling of the American dream is too strong a statement, but, but an exploration of the American dream. And it could have just as easily, you know, you can tell stories about the American dream, just legal small businesses but the Godfather is a version of the American dream working outside of the law that says a lot of things about the American dream, the everyday American dream, um, and the and the and the experience of immigrants um, and how they how they assimilate over the course of generations, um, or or how they try to and how they try to to stay connected to their to their ancestry over the course of those same generations. Um, so yeah, I, I, another way of putting it is. Uh, if I can don my pretentious uh, former English professor cap, uh, Emily Dickinson's line, tell the truth, but tell it slant. The slant in these cases is, is looking at human nature from really sometimes not even through humans, but, but through very uh, skewed or unlikely perspectives. Um, and from there, those perspectives saying something that I don't want to say speaks to all of us, but says, but, demonstrates truths about ways of life within the law. 
And I think, I think, so it's a combination of the excitement of the very foreign, but that doesn't work if it doesn't somehow connect to, to everyday truths. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So if you had to answer the question, and I've never asked this question before, but like you kind of touched on it on the panel. And I remember somebody else saying something that I disagreed with and I can't quite put my finger on it, but um, how would you explain the tragedy of Michael Corleone? Okay. I talked a little bit on the panel about how Paul Cantor would have understood it. And I'm not sure my, my interpretation is too, too different from that. The, the tragedy is that his father wanted him to be a, a way from the mob and to, to be legitimate. Maybe that's too, too, uh, that's an overstatement to be a politician. <laughs> um, and so within the American, uh, framework of legitimacy and the tragedy is that Michael didn't do that because he was drawn to his duty to his father to protect his father. And then the tragedy continues when he, Whereas in the first one, he tries to protect, he does it for his family. In the second one, he, be, he essentially betrays his family um, in any number of ways. Uh, Fredo being the, the most obvious example. Uh, and then Cantor didn't really, he never discussed the third godfather for obvious reasons, but I do think it continues the, tra the tragedy because Michael it's again so much about the tragedy is about the family because you know there's the famous line you know when i just when i thought i was out they pull me back in and his his daughter is the victim um i'm guessing people in the theaters may have actually cheered that death given the the quality of the acting but it's i think it's a tragedy of being torn between competing senses of obligation and consistently I don't know if he chose incorrectly to defend his, protect his father, but um, the, the tragedies uh, are ultimately tragedies about his family. Yeah. So, I mean, the reason I'm thinking about this is, is, I mean, I think that's general. I, I think that's right. And it's definitely, it's, it's one correct interpretation, right? The, 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 the thing I'm getting at is Cantor argued that, uh, or said in an interview or something he wrote that Coppola, um, thought that it was a, that the Godfather was really a metaphor for the dehumanizing aspects of capitalism. And, and one of the things I like about Cantor is, I, I, he, as you know, he, 
He says that the creators of these artworks are often wrong about what their artworks mean, which I kind of like. Um, but um, in a it's in a sense, I think there's some truth to it in in this sense, and it's not the sense that Capital meant. But you know, so one of my big things is this idea from Friedrich Hayek um, about the microcosm and the macrocosm that, um, or you know, what the German political scientists call Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, and and Gemeinschaft is the um, is the informal stuff, family bonds of faith, right? The microcosm is friendships, family, faith, the little platoons, these things that work on informal rules of reciprocity and kinship and and tradition and all that kind of stuff. And then the Gesellschaft, you know, there are these two spheres of life, and there's one is the sort of the the close, the familiar, the tribal, the familial the informal, you know, as I often put it, like if my uncle comes and says, comes to town and says, I don't have a hotel room. Uh, my car was stolen, whatever. Can I sleep on your couch? I'm like, absolutely. Right. No questions asked. Right. Total stranger comes and says that to me. I'm like, no. Right. And, and, uh, that's because the rules, you know, the rules in the family are different than the rules in the extended order. Like we, uh, we are communists in our home. It's, Truly, each to according to their ability, to each according to their need. We don't charge our kids for food, all that kind of stuff. And in the extended order of the rule of law, that's liberal. One of the great things about what what liberalism is is the way to deal with strangers, right? And anyway, so it seems to me that um, part of where the the Coppola thing about Godfather makes some sense to me is that when Don Coyone is running it, when the Pops is running it. It's all organic. It's bound up in the tradition of the family. It's bound up in these rules of sort of pre-modern rules, right? That's what the opening speech is all, or opening dialogue is all about. And it flows naturally based upon shared assumptions about family, about reciprocity, about patronage and all that kind of stuff. And which is the great hypocrisy and irony and, and dishonesty really of when people like Corleone say it's just business. Because it's not just business. It's something else, right? And then Michael comes along and he sort of wants to make the mob quote unquote legitimate and modern and actually make it a business. Yeah. And it's, I always say like, you can't, you can't run a family like a business and you can't run the government like a family, right? You can't, if you take, try to take the rules of the family and impose it on the extended order, you're going to make it an, uh, an autocracy. If you try to take the rules of politics or, 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 or the, the market and apply them to the family, you're going to destroy what the family is about. And it seems to me that part of what Coppola gets at there is if you're going to try and actually just make the mob like a business, um, you are going to trample all of this weird sort of sinew of shared norms about family and honor and, and that kind of thing. And then it just becomes evil in its own right and and it becomes not just no longer about family but you're willing to sacrifice your family um so which which is even worse yeah and and along the way i mean th there's the there's the move to selling drugs which, which is kind of the first step um away from uh away from kind of the the honor the sicilian honor and and towards becoming a more american uh business enterprise, albeit still an illegal one, 
And yeah, Michael tries to make it legitimate by by moving out to Vegas. But but even then, I mean, there's so much illegitimacy to it, uh, you know, setting senators up to take the fall for the death of hookers, for example. Um, I really like how Cantor talks about the movies. Well, let me take this back to your point about um, how he's willing to challenge the, the creators. This came up in the context in the panel in the context of Breaking Bad where uh, he was willing to challenge the, the writer and creator, Vince Gilligan's understanding of Walter White as somebody who went from Mr. Mr. Chip to uh, Scarface. And Paul said, I met, I had lunch with him. He's a wonderful guy, but he was wrong about this. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I don't know what I think about, uh, you know, whether he, Gilligan was actually wrong about that, but um, his uh, uh, Cantor's readings of Breaking Bad, I think, are phenomenal um, because it, and they do something that his work on The Godfather did uh, as well, which was to take this pop culture seriously. I think The Godfather had been taken seriously for a long time already, so it wasn't so much of a leap. But with Breaking Bad, it was just a really thoughtful explication of uh, connecting Breaking Bad to the Shakespearean tragic tradition. And along the way, Cantor keeps saying, I know this sounds ridiculous. Just be patient. I'm going to make my case. And it ends up really, I think, being a convincing case for how Walter White became, uh, was a truly tragic figure because he, he descended into this kind of not quite complete evil, but obviously criminal, murderous, with a hint of redemption at the end. And part of that redemption was that he recognized how corrupt he had become. And that how he had been deluding himself along the way when he said it had all been all about family. I'm not sure that's the case. Any of your listeners haven't watched Breaking Bad. At the beginning, he's in it to, to support his family, healthcare costs and all things like that. By the end, he acknowledges it had just been about power all along. And I wonder if, if anything like, does anything like that happen in The Godfather, um, where, where Michael kind of acknowledges that um, his his reasons for getting into the uh, into the family business at the beginning weren't really all that altruistic or, or uh, family bound as he had convinced himself. And had he been corrupt all along? I don't know. Just 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 a question that occurred to me comparing the two. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think the similarity between Godfather and Breaking Bad, at least along the lines I was talking about, is that it's the arrogance of intellect for both of them. They kind of think. They have, a, they, have, they have big Chesterton's fence problems, right? Where they think that they can just grok out through their superior intellect and their superior understanding of things that they don't really understand um, a better way of doing things. And, and I think it's much more explicit in, in Breaking Bad, right? Where he takes his, he makes the problem of taking his scientific knowledge and thinking it makes him smart about everything and reduce and reduces human beings to basically chemical input inputs, right? And dehumanizes them. Um, but I, so we got to close out here, but, um, so you used to teach literature and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm always nervous, even though I wrote a lot about Byronic heroes and, 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 and tragic heroes and anti-heroes in, in suicide. Otherwise, I'm always nervous talking about this stuff because I'm never, never fully comfortable with that. I'm using the terms, in accordance with an actual definition. And there, there's, there's some things I, you know, there's some words I just know what they mean. And there are other things I always have to relook up to make sure I'm not using it wrong. So in the case of a tragic hero, does the tragic hero 
need to. Okay, so his argument is that he's not a villain. He's a tragic hero. And my view is, is that like, if you know you're doing evil and you choose to do evil, you are no longer a tragic hero. You are a villain. And, but at the same time, it's sort of like, you know, deathbed conversions. If you realize that you were doing evil and you try to make amends, maybe you are a tragic hero. How does it, how does it work? I, I think the tragic hero, the tragic hero is a villain of sorts, in, as you suggested, because he, he commits evil, but the reasons for committing evil, um, well, first of all, he has to start from a high position, either a position of nobility or just moral goodness, and is eventually brought down, um, as is the case of Othello, for example. And I, I think that's, that's the key element of the tragic hero, that the tragedy is the descent. Uh, it's not that everything the tragic hero does is, is with good intentions or well-meaning or anything like that, but the tragic hero had been capable of something great and is brought low either out of pride or, you know, jealousy and things like that. Um, and then the Byronic hero is a little bit different because the Byronic Byronic hero is, it stands a little bit more outside of the rest of culture. Right. More true to his own code than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of TV anti-heroes are more like Byronic heroes um, than, than they are tragic heroes. You know, Byronic heroes are all over the place in popular culture. You know, um, you know, what's Omar from The Wire, right? He's, he's a murderer who murders other drug dealers. And, but he, he says, a man's got to have a code, right? Um, and yeah, and, and they're always, Byronic heroes are always cool. Yeah. There's they're something very charming and, and seductive about the Byronic hero. Yeah. No one's ever given enough attention, I think, to Mel Gibson's movie Payback which is, is sort of plays with a lot of this stuff, right? Um, but um, we'll have to return to that another time because... Yeah, that sounds good. Between our technological catastrophe and, uh, and running long, um, I just got to go. So thank you so much for doing this, Chris Scalia. Jo Jonah, can I just put in a quick plug for anybody who likes pop culture, as any listener of this entire episode would be? Cantor's books, Gilligan Unbound, Pop Culture and the Dark Side of the American Dream and the Invisible Hand in Popular Culture are all really great cultural studies from a conservative slash libertarian rather than Marxist perspective um, that, that are, I think, would be of interest to anybody who, who like this episode or glop culture. Um, you should check those out. Yeah. So the nice thing is, is that anybody who stuck around this long is going to be interested in that. Yeah, exactly. And anybody <laughs> who isn't left a while ago. So it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Joan. I appreciate it. Okay, so uh, Chris has left the studio. In fact, I left the studio. I had to go record another podcast, so I'm recording this close long after uh, I stopped talking to, Clint, to Chris. I know I'm going to hear from all sorts of people about all sorts of things about, about that conversation, that it's going to range from that was great to you were terribly wrong about this, that, or the other thing to never talk about popular culture again. So be it. Such is life. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun, and... Um, uh, I can't remember all the points that I wanted to make about our conversation from before, but I, I um, I'm look forward to the feedback. So um, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.